Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Thursday, the 1st of October. Today, we're going to brief you on Lawyer X. Many people know the big names that she ended up betraying, um, who were her clients, um, Carl Williams, Tony Mockbell, and their various crews. She put pillars behind bars. You'll find out who Lawyer X is and why she might be spending the rest of her life in hiding. First, Annika Smethes is here. Let's hit the big news of the day. That was a hot mess inside a dumpster fire, inside a train wreck. Hello. Yes, if you missed it, that is one take on yesterday's first presidential debate, which is being widely touted as probably the worst in history, and it's not hard to see why. No, Sir, stop. I would never say I would that. Play stop. Will you who shut is up, on, man. Listen, who is on your list, Joe? This who's is on your so list? Gentlemen, this is, I think this we've is ended so this. Unpresidential. Yeah, and that's pretty much the way it went for most of the 90 minutes, constant interruptions with most of them from the president. I think that the country would be better served if we allowed both people to speak with fewer interruptions. I, I'm appealing to you, sir, to do that. Well, and him too. Well, frankly, you've been doing more interrupting than he has. that's all right, but he does plenty. One of the moments that really stuck out was when President Trump was asked to condemn white supremacist and militia groups. He started by lecturing the left before asking the moderator to give him a name to condemn. What do you want to call him? Give me a name. Give me a name. White supremacist and right right proud boys. boys, Stand back and stand by. But I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what. Somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left. Yeah, so that was quite interesting. Basically gave a shout out to the Proud Boys, um, which is a a far-right group, uh, self-described as Western chauvinists. Um, They've been linked to a number of violent incidents. Joe Biden was asked to distance himself from Antifa. Um, You heard Trump mentioning it there. Um, He didn't do that in a necessarily strong way either. But in terms of real-world impact... It's the far-right groups that have been uh, blamed for a lot of the terrorism. There's a a report from a DC-based think tank, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and they found of domestic terror incidents in the US, two-thirds came from far-right groups in 2019 and 90% of attacks in 2020. It was interesting to watch, Annika. Um, Trump was turned up to 11. There was lots of bullying, misinformation and chaos, but I think to many of his supporters... That makes him look strong. I totally agree. I don't think this debate will actually change anyone's opinion on who they're going to vote for. It was more about getting people out to vote. Trump definitely played to his base. And that criticism over Joe Biden not condemning the left, that will also play into Trump. We've seen a lot of people in the streets over Black Lives Matter protest. And he's really trying to link Joe Biden to being, I guess, a little bit soft on those sort of groups. So I think no one's going to pick up a vote here, but it might maybe unite the base and get them to come out and vote next month. Yeah, I think potentially um, the risk that Trump was taking with that extreme tactic was to actually infuriate and um, enrage soft Democrat supporters and maybe push them to get out and vote and maybe to get voting early in the mail-out ballots, which seemed to be uh, a real weak spot for Trump. And another day, another budget announcement. Today, the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, will unveil a $1.5 billion cash injection aimed at kick-starting local manufacturing here in Australia. 
The PM will say it'll create 300,000 jobs. Now, this will focus on six priority areas where we've got a competitive advantage. These are medical products, defence, recycling and clean energy, uh, high-level food and beverage space and resources and minerals. Yeah, it's hard to know, Annika, whether he'll have anything left to announce by the time the budget rolls around on Tuesday. We've got a lot of a lot of announcements leading up to it, haven't we? Look, I think if there was ever going to be um, a budget that'll give people a lot of stuff, this is it. It's going to be high spending. I think there'll be something in it for everybody. As a sort of woman in their 30s who works and doesn't have kids, I always sort of joke to the treasurer that there's nothing in it for people like me, but I think even people like me might benefit next week. A change is on the way for millions of Aussies who use Facebook, Instagram and WhatsApp. Yeah, the social media giant's moving to better integrate all of its social media sites. It means Instagram users will be able to use Messenger without having a Facebook account. It hasn't even been rolled out yet. That'll happen in the next few months. But already federal police have flagged concerns about the changes. Specifically, they're worried about plans for end-to-end encryption on all apps instead of just WhatsApp. Yeah, here's the AFP, the Australian Federal Police Commissioner, Rhys Kershaw, telling Nine how it will impact the number of tip-offs they get about suspected child abuse. Almost 50 to 60% of our referrals come from Facebook. That will go to zero once encryption comes in. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this technological change works. I've always been interested to see how Facebook will actually use WhatsApp. They paid $19 billion for it in 2014, which is a lot more than they paid for Instagram two years earlier. Um, It sort of seems to stand alone. How they'll integrate it um, into Facebook or Instagram will be really interesting to see. The government has also been pushing for a while now to have access uh, in extreme circumstances to encrypted messages. This is something that some of our allies across the world want to actually be able to crack into these systems that are usually blocked for extreme things like child abuse. Yeah, so if more people are using encryption, you know, just regular Facebook and Instagram users, I, I imagine that that would be a bit of a nightmare for those authorities wanting more access. All right, and some interesting news related to the briefing topic you're about to hear on Lawyer X. Yesterday, criminal Tony Mockbell started his appeal proceedings related to the drug crimes she represented him on. Mockbell briefly appeared in court via video link, appealing his conviction. Yeah, and if you're not sure what we're talking about there, you're about to get the full backstory. Today we're briefing you on one of the biggest scandals in Australia's history. Lawyer X, also known as Informant 3838. She's represented some of Victoria's most dangerous gangland criminals, drug trafficker Tony Mockbell. She was a criminal barrister acting as a police informer. She made around 5,500 information reports using detail obtained under legal privilege. The Lawyer X scandal could see some of Australia's most notorious criminals, including Tony Mockbell, released from prison. And there's also concern that those criminals might want Lawyer X dead. And that's why she might have to spend the rest of her life in hiding. This scandal led to a royal commission, which is going to report back in November. So who is Lawyer X and what did she do? They made it clear to me that if I didn't continue to assist them and to do what they asked, they would release my name and effectively feed me to the wolves. My greatest fear is the police themselves. Last year, her name was revealed. It was Nicola Gobbo. She's a prominent lawyer who represented some of Melbourne's biggest criminals and at the same time was giving information about them to the police. 
and that may have tainted the evidence used to put more than 100 criminals in jail. To explain this story, we're going to speak to the journalist who first broke the story for the Herald Sun in 2014. His name is Anthony Dowsley. Here is Nicola Gobbo talking about him. I can't put it into words how frightened I was that this particular journalist not only said, I'm going to put this on the front page of a newspaper tomorrow, but the information I have is accurate because it comes from a Victorian police officer. Since putting that story on the front page of the Herald Sun, there have been many more as Anthony's followed the case. Anthony Dowsley, this is your story. You've followed it the whole time. Can you tell us a bit about Nicola Gobbo? She was quite well known in criminal circles in Melbourne. She came from a really impressive legal pedigree. What sort of person is she? She is in some ways an adrenaline junkie. She has been obviously from a good family, a family um, with the Gobbo surname, which is synonymous in legal circles with uh, integrity and upholding the law, um, practising in the law. It is a family that uh, where her uncle was the governor of Victoria and also a Supreme Court judge. She had a name which people identified her with a proper and um, very good standing in the community. At some point that, of course, changed and, and she started snitching on her clients as a police informer. Can you tell us about, I guess, how this started? How did she come to do this? Well, it appears that Nicola Gobbo always had an idea about informing from her early teens, if if, if not uh, early 20s. She hooks up with a man who's a security guard at an excess concert. And that man, um, Brian Wilson, becomes, as she learns, he's a, a drug trafficker. She moves in with him. Uh, they buy a house together. From one bad relationship, he goes to another. And all of her companions are not necessarily good people. They are particularly involved in either the criminal world or in the police world mainly. So as someone who came from such a prestigious background, why do you think she was drawn to those kind of people? And how do you think that impacted the decisions she she later made that she's now famous for? Well, it appears that she's, to use the word again, she's lurching from one relationship to another, but she's always someone who wants to be in the spotlight. It's been described to me once as almost the Forrest Gump of involvement in high-level criminal incidents, um, not necessarily being a perpetrator of any, but always close to the big events. Um, in university, she's um, raided, her property's raided, her boyfriend is arrested. She is also arrested. Uh, that's in 1993. Uh, 1995, the boyfriend's moved back in. She tries to sting him um, by going to the police about him. Um, that doesn't work. It's a, it's a failed venture. In 1996, she actually becomes a lawyer. Uh, she has to lie uh, to the Board of Examiners to actually get admission. And by then, she's already a registered informer. and She's already registered with the police. Um, this is before she's even stepped into a courtroom as, a, as an official lawyer. And from there, she tries to set up her boss uh, in a sting, which doesn't work in 1999. She's registered again. And then she keeps up her relationship with police on and off. Um, and she becomes an informer again in 2005, and that's for her big stint uh, where she lands a lot of the uh, criminal convictions on gangland figures. So why did she do that? Why did she 
inform on her clients to the police. Obviously, that came at a, a big risk to her safety, but also her legal career. Was she was she getting paid by the police? Did they have some dirt on her? Was it ego? Why do you think she did it? It's certainly the last two. There's ego and there is an attraction to informing. Um, it goes towards what we, what we found early in her life um, when there's a Collingwood footballer who dies when she's um, young. Um, she's at the nightclub with Darren Mullane um, before he uh, has a car accident and dies and she becomes, she makes a statement about um, being there with him uh, at the Tunnel Nightclub. Look, to play devil's advocate for a moment, if she gave the cops info that helped put the bad guys away, What's wrong with it? Well, at first look, you think, well, there wasn't, uh, you know, a good outcome um, to a lot of this. Many people know the big names that she ended up betraying um, who were her clients, um, Carl Williams, Tony Mockbell, and their various crews. She put killers behind bars. She was able to basically hand over tens of millions of dollars in uh, assets uh, of these criminals into to the to the government, basically that went into the general revenue. These are astonishing figures: eighty million, she claims. But the other side of it is, if you didn't have a recollection of who these people were and what they did, would you do this going forward? Would you say, let's rip apart the entire justice system, uh, the whole adversarial uh, system, where you have a defence lawyer who's got to act in the best interests of their clients? And then you've got the prosecution who's got to prove a case. And what you get is is a system where it is completely broken. You've got nowhere to go um, because there's no defence. There's no adversarial system. You might as well not have a court. And that's that's the decision you're making, whether you want fairness. Because as you go along this sort of slippery path, you'll end up convicting people who have done nothing at all. And her snitching, of course, breaks lawyer-client privilege, which is quite an important thing in our system. So it's not against the law, though, but how important is that privilege between a client and their lawyer? It's sacrosanct because if you don't have it and you have police um, basically recruiting lawyers to become um, informers, you will have a situation where no lawyer will be able to get the trust of their client because they'll just think that they're snitching on them. Um, so you you basically break down the entire judicial system. The independence of the court uh, will be will be meaningless. Now, Dows, at some point this all becomes public and it's because you broke the story, but I understand you actually stumbled across it almost by accident. Can you tell us how you broke this incredible yarn? Well, I went to um, some drinks um, near um, a little uh, bureau where I worked. Um, yes, we do. <laughs> police rounds. And there'd, there'd been an interest um, sort of in the back of my mind about Nicola Gobbo because there had been a lot of media about her in the years previous to 2013-14 when I picked up on this sort of Nicola Gobbo thing again. What had happened is she'd already been a witness against a man by the name of Paul Dale, who was a former police officer who had been charged with a murder. She wore a wire against Paul Dale, and there was a whole history with regard to those two people, a massive history. And what I picked up on was that I already had some suspicions about why would a defence lawyer ever wear a wire um, to try and put a police officer in jail. That case fell apart in the end. But I always wondered why. 
And when I heard about her relationships with other police officers, in particular one who was a very high-ranking officer at the time, and the department that he he was overseeing, it, it formulated in my mind why is she in connection with so many sort of covert police officers or high-ranking police officers. That's what sparked it off. And it was actually a rumour about her having a love child with that officer. Wow. That didn't interest me that much. It was interesting <laughs> for pub talk, um, but what lay behind it was what was interesting to me. So you went to write this up in a big story for the Herald Sun and something happened that stopped you from doing that and hence why we now have the name Lawyer X. Explain that whole process. Well, I wasn't, as I said, I wasn't all that interested in the the whether there was or wasn't a love child, which was quickly. I quickly found out there wasn't, um, and that was a rumor. But it was the the idea of the rumor was interesting, in that why is there all these rumors? Why does this keep happening? So I found out what she really was, um, which was a you know a deep informer for many many years, and then from that point I went to write that article. Um, and I assume there would be several more that would come out of it. But on the night that we went to publish that article, Victoria Police uh, attempted to stop the newspaper from publishing it. It came to an agreement where we just sort of cut the article in half with the details they wanted out out uh, on the steps of the Supreme Court. From there, the story rolled on. We were injuncted. We had to stop the presses one night um, from revealing details that the police didn't want to come out, and then we fought a five-year fight. Um, as this whole saga went through the courts to the High Court of Australia for them to make a determination on whether this was in the public interest or not. Now, a lot of the people she represented were contacted to say that, you know, perhaps there might have been a couple of issues with their case. We've already seen an early release of one of her clients. How many people could challenge this, Dowson? How many, I guess, criminals could be back on the streets because of her informing? Well, that's the million-dollar question, there's not that many of her former clients still in prison. I think there's between 20 and 30. She represented people uh, within the tomato tins importation, which is the biggest ecstasy importation in Australian history. It occurred in 2007. Um, the reason the police were able to get onto that importation of 15 million ecstasy tablets was because Nicola Gobbo had a client who had the document to the container on the ship it was, it's called a bill of lading. Uh, so it's a shipping document which gives you access to say that's mine. Um, she photocopied that document and she gave it to the police and they um, went and actually uh, seized it once it got into, into Melbourne's docks. There's 32 of those, mainly uh, uh, mafia figures. Um, about 10 of them remain in jail. All of them want out. Will they be entitled to payouts if they can prove that, I guess, their cases weren't fair? Potentially, yes. Um, everyone, there's 1,011 people who might be entitled to some form of payout, I think. It's an extraordinary situation where because their rights were taken away from them, regardless of whether they are criminals or not. Wow, it's absolutely huge and it triggered a royal commission and we're going to see the final report from that um, commission in November. What do you expect to come from that and who's going to go down for this? Who's going to pay a price? We expect it to sort of flesh out that there are perversions of justice from the part of both parties that did this, which is Nicola Gobbo and, and Victoria Police. The individuals um, is what the real fight is over, whether those who were close to all of this, who were getting Nicola Gobbo to give them information, 
the police who were dealing with criminals and getting her to tell them um, to plead guilty or to um, to roll over, which means to turn them into informer, which is really the big thing that Nicola helped the Piranha Task Force with, was to turning people into informers. Yeah, wow. It'll be fascinating to see what happens, um, you know, and what the consequences are for such a enormous, systematic, problematic series of decision-making within police. Very interesting to see how it pans out for Nicola Gobbo too. Anthony, thank you so much for joining us on The Briefing and telling this important story. No problem. Pleasure. That was Anthony Dowsley from The Herald Sun, who's got a book out on the Lawyer X scandal. It's called Lawyer X. And as for Nicola Gobbo's whereabouts, last year she was living in hiding overseas. And then recently it was revealed she had come back to Australia, but left again just before Christmas. Where she is now... We don't know. And tomorrow on The Briefing, all the juicy details from Donald Trump's tax statements. A Podcast One production.